detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And I'm Chris. And we're the Film Flamers. And we're here to kick off our Verhoeven month, or actually, Verhoeven summer. That's right. It's also Pride Month, so, you know, we had to pick a couple Verhoeven movies that have, like, the slightest twinge of lesbianism. Well, this is definitely twingy. It is. Certainly twingy. Of course, we're talking Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct is a 1992 neo-noir erotic thriller film directed by Paul Verhoeven and written by Joe Esterhaus. The film stars Michael Douglas, Gene Triplehorn, George Zunda, Wayne Knight, and Sharon Stone in her breakout role, despite, of course, being in many, many films, mostly B-films or under-the-radar films before this. The score was composed by, of course, our Film Flamers favorite, or one of our Film Flamers favorites, Jerry Goldsmith. The film focuses on a San Francisco detective investigating a grisly murder and begins a torrid affair with the prime suspect, an enigmatic mystery officer. The movie garnered a lot of controversy after its release for its overt sexuality, including a rape scene. Gay rights activists criticized the film's depiction of homosexual relationships and its portrayal of a bisexual woman as depraved, murderous psychopath. So throughout this movie, I actually watched the theatrical cut, I believe, and you watched the unrated version, right? Right, yeah. So when I was going through things on Amazon, I saw that there was a regular version to rent or an unrated version to rent. And I was just like, okay, I've never seen the unrated version. I'm going to go with that. Just because I, I feel like we owe that to Verhoeven, right? And all of his yeah. like crazy, campy, sexy glory. Let's just do the unrated version. And I got my copy from Google Play. So I think I, I watched the theatrical version. So what we're going to do is, is we're going to be referring to each other's versions throughout this, not really having watched the other recently. And uh, you're going to hear us both kind of report back on, on what we saw and maybe find out what the differences were. It's not what we normally do, but I think that's a good approach to a conversation on a movie. Yeah. Okay, listeners, you know we don't like to wear underwear, don't you? This is Basic Instinct. So we got 31 stab wounds. What was it? Ice pick. I'd like to speak to a Miss Catherine Tremell, please. Is she a suspect? She's a writer. She published a novel. It's about a retired rock and roll star who gets murdered by his girlfriend. You know how she does the boyfriend? With an ice pick. She intended the book to be her alibi. You didn't feel anything for him, you just had sex with him for your book. In the beginning, he gave me a lot of pleasure. You like playing games? Games are fun. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. How's it feel to kill someone? You tell me. People. She manipulates people. She's evil! Freeze! I have nothing too high. You playing a game here? I'm Games are over.
Aging rock star Johnny Boz is having kinky, rough sex with a mysterious blonde woman. She ties his hands to the bed frame with a white silk scarf. As she straddles him, he runs into her... <laughs> he runs into her ice pick. He runs into her ice pick 31 times. <laughs> Later, down and out San Francisco detective Nick Curran, played by Michael Douglas, is called with his partner, Gus, played by George Zunda, to investigate the crime scene. Boss had several political connections, and the mayor's aide hovers over the investigation from the start. Due to an accidental shooting of two tourists while high on cocaine on an undercover assignment, Nick is required to see internal affairs psychologist Beth Garner, played by Jeannie Triplehorn, with whom he has an on-again, off-again relationship. He tells Beth that he's making progress and has been sober for three months. The only clear lead the detectives have for Boz's murder is Catherine Trammell, played by Sharon Stone, a successful crime author and last person seen with Boz before his murder. Nick and Gus attempt to track Catherine at her Pacific Heights mansion, but only find her, uh, friend? Roxy, played by Leilani Sorrell. She points them to a beach house after assuring them that Catherine didn't commit the murder. At the beach house, the detectives question Catherine about her relationship with Boz, whom Catherine insists she wasn't dating, only fucking. She doesn't seem upset by his death, but mentions she will at least miss their sex. After Nick and Gus discover that the murder mirrors one in Catherine's novel, they bring her to the station for questioning after she changes into something more appropriate, a short white miniskirt sans squirrel covers. During the interview, she continuously seems to taunt Nick, and she crosses her legs in a suggestive manner, exposing her ham wallet, hot pocket, puff pillow, juice box, banana basket, fur burger. Let's just go with vulva. <laughs> Later that night, Nick heads to a bar with his fellow officers where he ends his months-long sobriety and gets into a screaming match with internal affairs detective Marty Nielsen, played by Daniel Von Bargen. When Beth shows up, she and Nick leave together. They have some very rough, heated, problematic sex before she angrily tells him to leave. Nick begins to learn more about Catherine. Both of her parents were killed in an explosion on their boat when she was a teen, and she has a weird quirk of befriending murderers, including her friend lover, Roxy, who killed both her brothers when she was 16, and Hazel Dobkins, who murdered her husband and children. During a visit to her home, Nick discovers that she knows more about him than she has let on, and is using him as a model for the main character in her new novel, about a detective who falls for the wrong woman who kills him. Nick confronts Beth about Catherine's knowledge of his background, and she confesses that IA Detective Nielsen was given his file. Nick also learns that Beth and Catherine knew each other during their college years. Nielsen is later found shot to death with a bullet in his head. Nick is put on leave and begins a torrid affair with Catherine. Jealous, Roxy attempts to kill Nick by running him over, but ends up killing herself in an accident. With their affair heating up, and despite being on leave, Nick continues to investigate Catherine and begins to learn more about her previous relationship with Beth, such as, let's be honest, the two having a one-night stand in college and accusing the other of being obsessed. Coincidentally, a psychology professor who was also murdered with an ice pick during their college careers, an event that inspired one of Catherine's early novels. 
To his dismay, Mick begins to suspect that Beth may be behind the murders instead of Catherine. He heads over to Catherine's house, finding the pages of her newest book printing. Before Catherine joins him, he notices a passage that describes him finding his partner dead in an elevator. Catherine seems cold and detached now that the book is finished, and his character has been written and died, and quickly dismisses him from her house, ending the affair. This causes Nick to become suspicious of Catherine again, and meets up with his partner Gus, who has arranged to meet with Catherine's old college roommate, hoping it will reveal who the true psychopath is. They travel to the building, where they are to meet, but Nick stays behind since he's not on duty. Recalling the elevator murder scene in the last pages of Catherine's new book, Nick rushes to check on Gus, who he finds dead after running into someone's ice pick several times over. <laughs> Beth unexpectedly arrives, and believing she's reaching for a gun, Nick shoots her dead, only to find she was fiddling with an ornament on her keychain. After the police arrive and search the premises, they find a discarded blonde wig and police raincoat. Later, in Beth's apartment, they find some of Catherine's books, along with incriminating photos and ice picks. Devastated, Nick returns to his apartment, only to find Catherine, who has seen the news on the TV and wished to console him and explain why she had been so hesitant to commit to him. After all, people keep dying around her. They have raunchy makeup sex, but before they can live happily ever after, an ice pick is revealed to be under the bed, just within the reach of Catherine's stink. <laughs> an ice pick is revealed to be under the bed, just within the reach of Catherine's stink. <laughs> Can't even say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's too hot to laugh. <sighs> Stinky pinkies. <laughs> Holy shit. <sighs> the end. End? <laughs> well. Oh. <laughs> what sticky piggy? <laughs> Basic Instinct was released on March 20th, 1992 and competed in Cannes Film Festival that year actually as the opening film. Mm-hmm. Opening on more than 1,500 screens, the film earned over $15 million in its first weekend, landing the number one spot at the box office. Other films in the top ten that weekend included Wayne's World, My Cousin Vinny, and Fried Green Tomatoes. Basic Instinct would jump between the first and second spots at the box office for nine consecutive weeks, making it one of the most successful movies that year. It was the fourth highest grossing film of 1992, behind Disney's Aladdin, The Bodyguard, and Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Domestically, it would gross more than $117 million with a worldwide total of $352 million against a budget of $49 million. That's a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. Basic Instinct holds a 56% on Rotten Tomatoes. What? Yeah, I know. With an audience score of 63%. The site's consensus reads, Unevenly echoing the work of Alfred Hitchcock, Basic Instinct contains a star-making performance by Sharon Stone, but is ultimately undone by its problematic, overly lurid plot. 
Metacritic assigns the movie a 41 into getting mixed reviews, and audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film an average grade of B+. It's kind of all over the place. Hmm, yeah. Hmm. People didn't know what to think of this. Yeah. Janet Maslin of the New York Times praised the film, saying, Basic Instinct transfers Mr. Verhoeven's flair for action-oriented material into the realm of Hitchcockian intrigue, and the results are viscerally effective, even when they don't make sense. Now a positive review, Janet? <laughs> no. <laughs> Janet. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone also praised the film, saying it was a guilty pleasure film. He also expressed admiration for Verhoeven's direction, saying, quote, His cinematic wet dream delivers the goods, especially when Sharon Stone struts on with enough come-on carnality to singe the screen, end quote, and praised Stone's performance, quote, Stone, a former model, is a knockout. She even got a rise out of Arnold in Verhoeven's Total Recall, but being the bright spot in too many dull movies stalled her career. Though Basic Instinct establishes Stone as a bombshell for the 90s, it also shows she can nail a laugh or shade an emotion with equal aplomb. I like that word. Aplomb. Roger Ebert gave the film two out of four stars, saying the film was well-crafted, but died down in the last hour. He wrote, the film was like a crossword puzzle. It keeps your interest until you solve it. Then it's just a worthless scrap with the spaces filled in. I don't agree with that. I don't think he's slow Mm -hmm. here. I feel like I got it. In the first five minutes, you know what I mean? Like, first ten minutes. Yes. You know, or at least my guess wasn't wrong, but it's still kind of ambiguous, but we'll get into that later. Right. Yeah. And it certainly is still entertaining when you figure it out. Exactly. So, so Dave Kerr of the Chicago Tribune also gave the film a negative review, calling it psychologically empty. He said, quote, Verhoeven does not explore the dark side. He merely exploits it. And that makes all the difference in the world, end quote. Thank you, Dave. Oh, thank you. Um, it does have some accolades, sort of. Um, at the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Editing and Best Score. Well-deserved. Yes. At the Golden Globes, it was nominated as well for Best Actress for a Drama and Best Original Score. At the Golden Raspberries, it was nominated for Worst Actor, Michael Douglas, who also was nominated that year for Shining Through, Worst Supporting Actress for Triple Horn, and Worst New Star for Sharon Stone. Golden Raspberries are dumb sometimes. For real. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Horror Film, interestingly, Best Director, Best Writing, Best Actress, and Best Music. Man, the Saturn Awards have been getting things right for way longer than a lot of these other awards. I mean, they're the genre-savvy award show, so... And I guess they've already answered one of our questions, but we're going to ask it at the end of the show anyway. Despite earlier controversies, the film was later recognized for its groundbreaking depictions of sexuality in mainstream Hollywood cinema and was described by one scholar as a neo-film noir masterpiece that plays with and transgresses the narrative rules of film noir. A sequel released 14 years later, Basic Instinct 2, also starred Sharon Stone and was made without Verhoeven's involvement. The sequel received negative reviews and was relatively unsuccessful. Basic Instinct, after Fatal Attraction, helped usher in a decade-long stream of erotic noir thrillers and has earned its place in pop culture. It has been referenced, parodied, and discussed many times since its release. You know, and I think there's some other things to say about this, right? Because I don't know that it ushered in so much it was like um, another progenitor of it. You know, I would say it kind of kicked off with Fatal Attraction, maybe. You yeah, know, that was 87, but you know, it took them a little bit to really kind of have an answer for that. Now, Silence of the Lambs came out a year before this, and I think this is kind of an answer to both of those in a, in a little bit of a way. 
I would agree, right? And I, I, when we start talking about some of the characters, I will probably reference Song to the Lambs again because I have a, a little connection between these two, Catherine Chamel and a Hannibal Lecter, right? Um, yeah. But you're right. I mean, like Fatal Attraction did kick this off, you know, and we've we've discussed Fatal Attraction at length and a deep dive way back in our first February episode. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say, I mean, like as successful as Fatal Attraction was like this movie came along and made a whole bunch of money and then it was imitated like immensely. Yeah, Absolutely. you know what? And, and it, it really opened some doors. Fatal Attraction was, you know, Oscar buzz for that. And Silence of the Lambs, certainly Oscar buzz for that. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it kind of opened the doors for the legitimacy of thrillers as horror, you know, and, and legitimate genre. And kind of interesting to see it as a milestone kind of between that Silence of the Lambs period and seven, mm-hmm. you oh, know, yeah. in that five-year span between like 1990 and 1995. I will say, though, and we've talked about this when we've talked about other sort of like 90s sex thrillers because they were really popular in that decade. You know, I feel like the imitation of this movie and Fatal Attraction or the combination of two of them just really brought on like boundary pushing like sex thrillers. I feel like, I mean, that was just a huge, huge part of the 90s and Basic Instinct really started a lot of it. And I feel like a, a lot of people are also trying to like recreate that Hannibal Lecter interview. Yeah. You know, uh, certainly in seven and certainly in this one, a little bit, their own version of it. Mm-hmm. And, and you could say the same thing for copycat a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so too. You know, but they're also independent and unique and, and have individual fingerprints and they're also enjoyable. That's true. I mean, and they stand out obviously like from the other imitations that come after these, but mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, like I do love that interview scene in seven and I love the interview scene in basic instinct. And I love the interview scene in Silence of the lambs. So yeah, maybe I just like interview scenes. Well, there's two interview scenes that are amazing in um, Sounds of the Lambs, or at least the first interview. And then the second conversation with Hannibal is just as good. Yeah, it's true. You know, I, w- I do want to say it's it's more than just influenced by Fatal Attraction or Silence of the Lambs. Obviously, just like some of the reviewers said, Hitchcock, uh, specifically Vertigo, I think is a, is a huge influence on this. Uh, and, and to me, Argento and Gialli is also kind of a, a theme here because, I mean, it's kind of that that hidden face, black glove. I mean, what did we just watch where the person's wearing the blonde wig and the, the dark coat? That was De Palma. Yeah, you're right. Who is heavily influenced by Argento yeah. and Hitchcock, right? You can see all of these things in that in this movie, too. You're right. I, I never really thought about that. Hitchcock, for sure. But I never thought about like a giallo influence in this movie. But now that you've mentioned it, I can see it all over the place. Oh, yeah. De Palma's on this. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like... <clears throat> Come on now. Verhoeven is clearly a student of De Palma. Yeah. And I, I want to kind of say that this might have been kind of independent of Fatal Attraction because Fatal Attraction was written as a screenplay in 1980. And this screenplay for Basic Instincts was shopped as early as the mid 80s before Fatal Attraction was made into a movie or bot. You know, also I'm thinking about things like Chinatown, you know, as we get into more like the straight, you know, film noirs and, you know, uh, you know, with some some of the damsels or like uh, some of the other, you know, uh, women in film noir and and, and, and things like that. Um, you know, so I'm thinking about, you know, Maltese Falcon and, and, and other things. So this is a lot of stuff that kind of makes up the inspiration here, but, you know, becoming a kind of a Titan of its own, as far as influence for things that we've already covered, like wild things for sure is easily, you know, like the, the twist at the end with Nev Campbell is basically like the entire movie of this. You could say wild things could be a fucking prequel, you know, in a, in a way, <gasps> You know, to, to basic instinct or something like it, you know, of, of you know, how did Neff Campbell, you know, get those millions? We know, you know, <laughs> so it's like kind of a similar story in a way. And I feel like it's it's um, 
you know, also going into more um, maybe less camp areas with something like L.A. Confidential. Hell, Kim Basinger was actually um, was the bombshell in that mm-hmm. film noir thriller horror adjacent film. And uh, she was actually up for the role uh, in Basic Instinct. I didn't know that. Yeah. I feel like anytime we have a conversation about, you know, a, a character that's supposed to be or maybe written as like blonde and bombshell, like Kim Basinger sort of like falls into that conversation sometimes because she was popular at the time period. I mean, you know? and also we just covered To Die For. Which is a little, I don't know. There's some things floating around, you know, in, mm-hmm. in space. But, you know, nothing exists in a vacuum, right? Nothing is wholly original. I feel like it's safe to say, though, despite everything we've talked about just now, about, you know, the links between these movies and maybe where Verhoeven or Esther House got these, you know, ideas or were influenced by, this movie to me is very, very singular, Right. And I mean, I've seen it a lot. So, but like having these conversations, like I, I've never really put two and two together. I've, this movie has always just sort of like stood out to me on its own. Oh, well, yeah, it has definitely has its own identity, but I can't help but think of the things that we've been talking about over the years, mm-hmm. certainly Argento and De Palma and Hitchcock. And we need to talk about Hitchcock more for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. We're due. So let's talk about the background of the film a little bit more. Okay. Yeah. So outside of its influences and things that it has influenced, I mean, this is kind of a perfect storm. Right. It's we, we've talked before about things kind of just coming together for a film to make kind of like a, the perfect storm and and make something that's larger than the sum of its parts. You know, and so, you know, first off, we've we've got the director, Paul Verhoeven, you know, obviously someone that's done things like Robocop, Total Recall, Showgirls, Treasure Troopers, Hollow Man, et cetera. And literally the film that he did before this was Total Recall, you know, and so he had been doing film most of his life because he, he was like a, a military filmographer. Mm hmm. Uh, I believe before this and before he was ever a a Hollywood filmmaker and he was a filmmaker in his home country before that. And so he's got a lot of experience and he's definitely got kind of some common like campy adjacent themes throughout his movies. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, when I think about Verhoeven, I mean, obviously, like this movie pops into my head first, you know what I mean? But then you go back and look at things like RoboCop and Total Recall. And I'm like, he's really like working his way toward basic instinct. And the things that come after that, I feel are extra, extra campy. You know, I feel like the more control he has over story, uh-huh. the more Muppety his characters get, you know <laughs> yes. what I mean? The more, just a little bit more surreal, just elevated reality. Right. But not so much that it's, it's like cartoony. You know, no. just right above reality. And I really like that about Verhoeven. Like, you can definitely see that in Starship Troopers. There's some of that in Showgirls. <laughs> Certainly Total Recall. I mean, come on. It's everywhere in his work. It is. And I, I just, I really, really enjoy his films, right? I always have a good time when I'm watching a Verhoeven movie, right? Mm. Even, like, some of his newer work, which I haven't seen yet, like Bernadetta, which I hear is just, like, batshit, you know? And I really want to watch it because I know that at the end of the day, I will have a good time watching his movies. I won't have to think too much. And I mean, it's just a fun ride. Almost always. Well, and and he said that he had to, he was coaching Sharon Stone a lot, right? Because it was her first huge breakout, Mm -hmm. you know, role. And she was lacking some confidence. And so you can see Verhoeven's direction all over her performance because it is in that hyper reality, hyper confidence state that's just so perfect for this story. It is just a great matchup between Verhoeven's style and story that he didn't have anything really to do with. I mean, you're right. And I'm trying to think about like other ways that or other movies that he would have had that like level of direction when it comes to an actress or her performance or even an actor and his performance. But 
You, I mean, I can look at things like this and compare. The only good bug is a dead bug. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to talk about that movie. <laughs> Can't wait to talk about Showgirls, too, because I feel like the same conversation that we're having about this also is in Showgirls, yeah. right? Written by Joe Esterhouse, right? Who also wrote Showgirls. I feel like when these two get together to make a movie, it's just good yeah. and fun. Right. Yeah. He also did Flashdance and Jagged Edge. Which are like two really, really good, like quintessential like 80s movies, like adult 80s movies. Yeah. Uh Esterhouse doesn't shy away in his screenplays of of anything remotely sexual, right? It's it's always there at the at the forefront. Well, right. He does have his limits, which is coming up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so this was produced by Alan Marshall, who also produced Jacob's Ladder, Cliffhanger, Showgirls, Starship Troopers, Hollow Man. So he's also a regular collaborator with Verhoeven. Right. Although I would say Jacob's Ladder and Cliffhanger are separate. Um, but, you know, classics in their own right. Right. And then we've got cinematographer John DeBont. Oh, right? my God. Who... Who also did the cinematography for Cujo and Jewel of the Nile and Ruthless People and Die Hard and Flatliners. But he is also a director who directed Speed and Twister and The Haunting. So we've got this huge amount of talent already just going down this list. And it doesn't stop here. The music, of course, is by Jerry Goldsmith, right? And we have talked about Jerry Goldsmith many, 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 many times on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Just as a reminder, he's done like Planet of the Apes, The Omen, uh, Chinatown, Alien, Poltergeist, Gremlins, L.A. Confidential, most Star Trek movies, and about four billion other movies, most of which you know or have at least heard of. I feel like whenever we did our, like... Flamers Award that we used to do on Patreon, we gave this to Jerry Goldsmith, didn't we? I think we may have. Yeah. It was either him or like Bernard Herrmann or something like that. Well, he won an Oscar for The Omen, and I think he he was nominated for this. He was nominated for Elliot Confidential. He was nominated for a lot of things, you know? Yeah, his work is great. I especially love the score in this movie, and I'm getting much better at like noticing the score. I've never have been really good about that. It takes me several watches or even like listening on my own to be able to appreciate a score, but this one is excellent in my opinion. I didn't realize I knew the soundtrack before I watched this film because I I have a bunch of Jerry Goldsmith playlists. And this is a theme, you know, a collection of themes that shows up on that playlist. And so I had kind of memorized it before I even watched this movie. I just couldn't put a name to it because I always listen kind of while I'm working or doing something else. You know, so it was just kind of interesting to me that as soon as it started playing, I was like, yes, you know, I, I loved it so much. And, you know, it was nominated. So, I mean, it's, you know, I'm not alone. Maybe I should have won. Yeah. Let me look up and see what won that year. I don't know. Uh, it seems like that was a tough year, the Oscars. Uh, 92? Yeah. yeah. And then on top of that, I saw, which I didn't know, I saw in the credits, Rob fucking Botton, right? For makeup effects. And of course, this guy did The Fog, The Howling, The Thing, Legend, Witches of Eastwick, Robocop, Total Recall, Seven, Game of Thrones. I mean, this guy is everywhere. He is like the fucking Jesus Mount Everest of makeup effects. Especially and as soon as I saw race. him, I was like, oh my God, I am in for a ride. Yeah, I know. I d- did not realize at all that he played a part in any of this. So I was watching, and it had been several years since I had seen Basic Instinct. And uh, I, I saw his name when I sat down to watch it. And I was just like, holy shit. I was like, I don't remember there being a whole lot of effects. And then you get to like that opening scene. And I was just like, oh, I was just like, yes, here mm. we go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I've never seen this before. I have to admit. 
it's always I've seen clips. I know kind of what it's about. I've mm-hmm. seen the scene, you know, that scene. Everyone you know. knows that scene. Yeah. You know, and it's part of it. And, and you know, I'm a fan of Sharon Stone from other things, you know, and uh, certainly Michael Douglas is no stranger to me. And then, you know, finally watching this, I loved it so much more than I thought I would. And we'll, of course, get to our ratings later, you know, but just seeing all these names. And recognizing the music and seeing Rob Botten and like understanding where all, what all these people are capable of alone in their careers, much less working together. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be really interesting. And I ended up, you know, appreciating the fuck out of it. And it's really cool because, again, I mean, like we're talking about things that I may not have realized. Right. I always knew that Paul Verhoeven is an excellent director. I've always enjoyed movies that were written by Esther Haas. I don't know Alan Marshall that well, you know, but, but like Yon DeBont. For sure. You know, I mean, like Twister is an amazing movie. Yeah. But now that we're sitting here talking about it, I mean, this I know I would love to talk about Twister at some point on the podcast. All these people individually, I feel like people talk about in movies, but you're right. It is kind of the perfect storm. And it feels like they they with all these people together, it's impossible for them not to create a very good movie or at least a very popular movie. That or people competently would go and made. See. You yes. know it's going to be incredibly competently made. Exactly. I mean, whether or not, you know, it makes a shit ton of money, which it did, you know, but it, I, I feel like you could expect to at least see a movie that was going to be decent. Right. Yeah. And some types of stories and some types of writing, you can't really see that it doesn't work until it's in living color. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can't do shit about that outside of like expensive reshoots or creative editing. But this one just kind of worked. It did. And does, actually. Yeah. And uh, so let's get into the casting, which is the next, you know, part of the perfect storm. Okay. Obviously, we've got Michael Douglas. You know, and at first I was surprised that he wasn't producing this because he was really prolific in the 80s and 90s, right? I mean, Ghost in the Darkness, Romancing the Stone, you know, all of that stuff. But, uh, you know, upon some digging, I found out that he, you know, he learned back in 1984 with Romancing the Stone that he didn't want to both star and produce at the same time because they're shooting 14 hour days. And then he has to like make sure all the trucks get to the road so they can pour the gravel so they can get to the scene because it's been washed out every night. You know what I mean? <laughs> so he's having to do all that stuff. Um, but he did a lot of stuff that he didn't actually star in, too. Like one who flew over the cuckoo's nest. He won an Oscar for that for producing. I didn't know that. Yeah, me either. A Starman, Flatliners, Radio Flyer, Made in America, Face Off, The Rainmaker, all of those he produced or executive produced but did not star in. He produced Starman? Yeah. Really? Yes. Carpenter? Yes. Love it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, but obviously I think he was chosen um, or an obvious choice, at least uh, based on some of the other similar roles, such as obviously Fatal Attraction. Exactly. I, I feel like when watching this movie that when, when they were when they were creating the screenplay or at least talking about, you know, getting it made. I'm sure that Michael Douglas was probably thrown around a lot, especially for Basic Instinct. He's already been in a movie where he plays this kind of similar guy, like torn between two women doing things that he shouldn't be doing, but drawn to it. Right. Mm -hmm. He does that well though. And also by then he had won an Oscar for his acting already too, like for wall street, you know, like he, he's a recognizable leading man. And the more that I see him in movies as I'm an adult, I'm like, he's actually really attractive. (laughs) So yeah, you know, he's got a distinctive look, but so does his father. You know, like I want to kind of dismiss people's careers when it's uh, about nepotism. But you know what? This guy started on TV and then started producing and then went into movies, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, kind of cast himself, you know, when they couldn't find it for Romancing the Stone. Then he later on in the 90s, later 90s, he kind of placed himself in there for things like 
uh, the ghost in the, in the darkness, you know, but um, he's a competent actor and producer and an easy partner and choice by this time in the early 90s. That's true. He had proven himself out and he understands how movies work. He's made them. He's won Oscars for them. And he's been an, an actor in these types of movies. And so he's a really easy, low hanging fruit. So we have talked about Michael Douglas, I feel, on this podcast, like the most out of any actor, right? This is our third mm. Michael Douglas movie that we've done. Really? Yeah, so we did Fatal, Fatal Attraction, Action. Ghost in the Darkness, yeah. Basic Instinct. Mm-hmm. I mean, so maybe like he just he knew which parts to take. He knew which movies were going to be memorable, right? Maybe. I mean, he just chooses the right parts. Yeah. So, and where is he now? Everywhere. Is he? I'm... He's in the MCU. He has a TV show. Yeah. He's popping up in multiple places. Just letting Catherine Zeta-Jones just you know, guide him across the street safely. Yeah. <laughs> he looks good. I know. He you see him and <laughs> I was watching interviews last night with him and Kathleen Turner and I could tell you which one of them aged better. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't, I don't even have to see the interview to know that shit. What <laughs> <laughs> Chandler's dad. <laughs> But, I mean, as as good as Michael Douglas is in this movie and every movie, I feel like Basic Instinct is all about Sharon Stone. That's right. And once Michael Douglas was on board, uh, he wanted to find an established star to share the burden of the inevitable shitstorm, <laughs> as he didn't want to shoulder all of that himself. And so he recommended Kim Basinger. I don't see it. Yeah, I, I'm kind of wondering why my notes, everything I found said like his first pick was Kim Basinger when he had had an established partnership with Kathleen Turner. Kathleen Turner. Mm-hmm. And my God, I mean, she was doing um, uh, Serial Mom yep. and Undercover Blues mm-hmm. in 1991-92, right? She looked good. She could have done this. And with her voice, her Jessica Rabbit voice. Yes. This would have been very interesting to see Kathleen I Turner. I feel like she was also equally as popular in this particular time in the 90s. I really love Undercover Blues. I haven't thought about that movie in a long time. I know, right? My name is Morte. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good movie. Hi, Morty. And I really do like Kathleen Turner. but I, I, I don't see her in this role, though. I mean, I just don't. Oh, I could see her. But, really? but she was offered it. Okay. Regardless of him, you know, maybe he had a conversation with her first Mm -hmm. and she said no. So she wasn't an official recommendation. I don't know what happened behind the scenes. I know they're still besties to this day. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, they shared all those movies together. And yeah, they're both on a TV show together. In fact, but you didn't know that. I did not know that. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, but Julia Roberts, Greta uh, Scotchy, Meg Ryan, Michelle Pfeiffer, Gina Davis, Kelly Lynch, Ellen Barkin. Mariel Hemingway, Demi Moore, and, of course, Kathleen Turner all turned down the role. They didn't want to be naked for that long on screen. I mean, I, you can have a body double, I guess. I can't imagine Julia Roberts doing that. You know, no. I'm feeling comfortable doing that. Not, not at that point in the 90s. She no. would never have done that. No. There's no way in the world. Ellen no. Barkin, though, had, I mean, she, she did some risque film. In the early 90s, Meryl Hemingway also did. I feel like Demi Moore, I don't, this is not the right part for her. I feel like she was Later in the now. 90s was Striptease. Yeah, Much later. But that's more of a comedy. After the door was opened by Sharon fucking Stone. That's true. I mean, she really does. Like, she... <sighs> She sets a precedent for things in the 90s to happen, right? Everything that happened in the 90s, especially when it comes to like sexy sex thrillers, 
comes from basic instincts, right? Yeah. Like a boundary was pushed and then people felt they have to keep pushing boundaries until we get an underage threesome and wild things. Well, I mean, there's a thing happening here. There's a phenomenon happening where they were um, worried that actually explicit adult content was, wasn't was going to be compatible with new ideas of what mainstream thrillers were, even R-rated. Mm-hmm. And this was happening with the Reagan Revolution and everything else happening after Cruising came out, you know, like in those 80s, late 80s, and then like uh, in early 90s, it was really stopping and people things were getting more violent but less sexual, right? And so people got a lot more prude in movies and still to this day we do not see the amount of nudity and sexual extravaganza that this movie has in it unless it's a verhoven movie well yeah (laughs) (laughs) and even then you know this this really towed the line you know what i mean it does i mean and you're right i feel like like some movies that came after this were not maybe as explicit but there there were several that came after that you know had you know, trying to like push it just a little bit further. You know what I mean? But there are some moments in this movie that are just downright shocking sometimes. And it's still kind of shocking today. Oh yeah. The first five minutes I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I did not expect that from a 1991 movie, you know, or 1992 movie. Uh, But Verhoeven actually went with Sharon Stone due to her performance in his previous film he'd done right before uh, in Total Recall, where she had to change emotion from happy to psycho at the flip of a switch. I love her in Total Recall. I think she's excellent in that movie. And he's like, if anyone can do that, then they can play this, you know? I feel like Sharon Stone, after this role, became a star, and rightfully so. And I feel like... She may have had to fight to to show some of her true acting chops, even though I feel like she does it in this movie. I feel like her performance in this movie is excellent. And it was many, many years later before she even got like a, a, a Oscar award. Right. So not many. No, I, I would say like what? Ten years later. Maybe? Casino. I mean, Casino was mid to late 90s. Like yeah. 97. Something like that. 96. Maybe like, I mean, four years is still four many. years. And people are, no, I mean, come on. In a 40 year career, that That's four true. years is nothing. You know what I mean? Uh, at least now, looking back relatively, you know, and I would say, um, you know, she was in movies since the, since the early 80s. So she had been in movies for 10 years and just hadn't broken through. This allowed her to do that. I would say her true breakthrough in a blockbuster would be Total Recall, you know, but she wasn't starring. Right. So now she is starring. And a lot of people said this kind of ruined her career. It did not. She got some of her best roles in the 90s. Quick and the Dead. Obviously Casino, which she won an Oscar for. You know, and then she went on and and it was uh, due to other issues. Uh, She had a a stroke that many people don't know about. I didn't know that. In the early 2000s that ruined her speech. And she had to recover for many years from that. And like the first one of the first movies she did after that was fucking Catwoman. You know, that wasn't really a great comeback. You know, let's take a moment to discuss Basic Instinct 2. Have you seen it? No, I watched the trailer and I was like, nope. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. Okay, nope. moving on. I saw the reviews, saw the trailer, didn't like it. I don't want to. I don't want to watch it. Don't want to ruin it. I have such a, a specific feeling about this movie. I don't want to drag it down. Good, and I'm glad. I never want to see that. So I feel like we've all talked about it enough. If you've seen Basic Instinct 2, we don't want to know about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when we get into these classic, these episodes are, are going to be a little bit longer. So we apologize, but we do need to talk about the production a little bit. Yeah. So uh, the screenplay written in the 80s prompted a bidding war until it was finally purchased by Coralco Pictures for $3 million, which was fairly unheard of because it was paid directly to Esterhaus, who had been uh, the creative source for several other blockbusters, obviously, including Flashdance, like we said, in 1983 and Jagged Edge from 1985. And uh, he wrote this film in 13 days. 
Have you seen Flashdance? No. The Flashdance is an excellent movie. I mean, it's like quintessential 80s, right? It is impressively written, impressively acted, right? Which is the one with uh, Kevin Bacon? The one that Verhoeven did? No. Oh, Footloose? Footloose. Okay. I'm yeah. mixing those up. I haven't so, seen that either. Yeah, Flashdance is a little bit more adult than Footloose, right? I'm, I'm I guessing mean, so. Yeah, but it's not it's not as overtly sexual as this particular movie is. I mean, it's sort of, it's toe is on that line. But Flashdance is great, you know, and if this is, that was kind of his big, like, entrance as a writer in, in, in Hollywood, right? And I think a lot of people really enjoyed that movie and it made a shit ton of money, right? And yeah. Jagged Edge, while less successful than Flashdance, isn't excellent movie i really really like that one too yeah i'm just I'm, I'm looking for later credits and i can't really seem to find any that i can recognize by name you know compared to these after yeah. after basic instinct etc and showgirls um you know but there there was some development hell obviously it took a little bit for this to be to be finally won in a bidding war and he was paid that three million which is amazing i mean sharon stone was only paid five hundred thousand for this role are you serious i'm serious good god well verhoven had suggested changes to the script that ezra haas had disagreed with one of which included a lesbian sex scene that ezra haas even called exploitative <laughs> so he does have like, a line oh yeah i mean <laughs> and with verhoven unwilling to budge ezra haas and producer erwin winkler left the production so we've got both a writer and a, and a producer leaving the production over those supposed rewrites. So Gary Goldman was subsequently hired to do four different rewrites to the script <laughs> at the advice of Verhoeven. And after the fourth rewrite, Verhoeven finally admitted that his proposals were, quote, undramatic and, quote, really stupid. <laughs> so by the fifth draft, the, the script had reverted to Esterhaas' original with only minor visual and dialogue changes. And so Joe Esterhaas uh, received the sole writing credit. For the film. And I'm guessing that, you know, whenever you're looking at a film that where the director is not the writer, which is many times, yeah. right? Most cases, you know, uh, how are you gonna put in your your fingerprint, right? And usually that's with visual storytelling. And so I'm, you know, the leg cross, that was not in the script. No. Right. Uh the ending that we'll talk about a little bit later. I mean, I guess we could talk about it now with the ice pick under the fucking bed. You know, that is uh the worst shot to me, and and, and not technically. Technically it's a great shot, but Storytelling wise, that's pure Verhoeven. That's his, you know, Muppety <laughs> thing coming through to get away from the script and do something himself. And to me, that final fucking reveal takes away all of the charm and subtlety and ambiguousness uh, that make the story so attractive and interesting all the way through. And I'd rather just see when she's in bed with him at the end and she's sort of reaching over uh-huh. and then comes back empty handed that it be left at that and that you're like, was it just something she was doing like that looked like she was looking for something or was it something else without showing us the ice pick? I hate that. That that brought it down like a full half point to me because it was just masturbatory. I both agree and disagree with that. I I mean, I I don't mind it. Right. I feel like also everything you just said is, is very, very smart. Right. Which is kind of different than most of mainstream movie going audiences, right? Mainstream audiences like a fucking money shot. They want the cum shot at the end of the movie, right? And that fucking ice pick under the bed is what they wanted. You know what I mean? Like it really gives people what they want. You're right. That that, that it almost sounds like studio meddling. Exactly. You know? So it I, could have been. I could be really placing the blame on Verhoeven here, but I've seen other Verhoeven films and I, he really likes to hit you over the head with things. I feel like Verhoeven put that in there. Especially his message movies like Starship Troopers or Showgirls or Hell 
Did um, you just call Showgirls a message movie? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I mean, maybe we'll 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 dig we'll dig into that next week. Well, Starship but... Troopers is about you know m- you know military uh, industrial complex. Right. That's definitely a message movie. You know, um, and what's his other main message movie? <laughs> Robocop. Robocop. Yeah, that's yeah. totally against you know. Uh, capitalism, media state, you know, type of stuff. I feel Corporate, like corporatism really is what it is. We'll, we'll be talking about this a lot more as we like dive into Verhoeven a little bit, but I feel like if he's going to have a message movie, I think his movie is like supremely planted in something that's, you know, not realistic or at least more fantastic. Right. Yeah. But I, I feel like the, the ending shot of this movie was solely placed there to have the audience be like, Oh my God, you know, and I spit under the bed. Please. Yeah. I mean, I also, it's eye rollingly stupid. You know what I mean? But I can see why it's in the movie, right? The rest of the movie isn't eye rolling. It though. is not that, that one particular part is, but I can see why they put it in there. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and I'm fine with it either way. Like it doesn't, it doesn't ruin the movie movie for me and it doesn't make me like it any less it just it's just there you know what i mean because i because i know that joe schmo next to me watching it in the theater is gonna like that moment a hell of a lot more than i did so i mean you got to put some shit in there to get people talking about it i don't know let's make a film with a capital fucking f you know which the rest of it kind of is i mean i completely agree with you that's way way more than i expected yeah Yeah. this kind of beat expectations to me so that might be part of what influences my reading but i don't know there i mean this is a controversy but not a true controversy compared to some of the other things that surround this film obviously so should we get into some of those yes right so filming in san francisco was attended by gay and lesbian rights activists and demonstrators in san francisco police department riot police were present at every location daily to deal with the crowds protesters outside filming locations held signs that said honk if you love the 49ers (laughs) honk if you love men the protesters used lasers and whistles to interview with the film this is just reminding me of cruising it is yeah even though the police were on set and a restraining order was in place producer alan marshall individually picked out each protester that he wanted arrested and that disrupted production and led to a citizen's arrest of him (laughs) by the protester i guess and and which didn't lead to anything with the local police department but you know (laughs) still i don't know why you know i think this is the time right this is at the uh i want to say uh part of during the height of not the peak but you know aids hysteria they were grasping at whatever they could to reposition gays, lesbians, you know, bisexual, any one of the alternate sexualities into a better light so they weren't villainized or made into psychopaths and things like that. Because this was happening in thrillers. Today, we can look back on these things and be like, oh, they were just incidentally gay. Back then, they were so few and far between that they really had to, to really pick it for proper representation where we weren't just fucking villains, you know? And so I get it of the time. Today, I don't think that would happen. And I don't know how in the world these people knew about it while it was filming. You know what I mean? Unless everyone like knew what the movie was about or knew the plot parts of it. You know, I mean, like making a movie like Cruising, for sure. I mean, you know what the... How many gays are in Hollywood? How many gays are in the industry? How many of them talk and gossip? That's true. And how many of them live in San Francisco? That's (laughs) Okay, so everyone knew about it for those reasons. All of California (laughs) descended upon them. (laughs) It was the hot gates. But you're right. I mean, we've talked about this when we did our our episode on cruising, right? I mean, not just the the protesting, but the, the fact that, you know, gay people in these thrillers were seen in a very, very negative light, right? We have movies like Freebie and the Bean, even before cruising, right, that does the same thing and even that is kind of like trance so i know 
whenever we were, I was watching this movie for the podcast, right? And one thing that popped into my head, it was just like something that your husband has mentioned before is talking about some like a crazed bisexual, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And this, this movie really, really has that in two different characters. Yeah, it does. Mostly in the, in, in, um, what's her name? Roxy. Roxy Hart. I feel like Roxy is sort of presented more as a straightforward lesbian, though, and and Catherine is more of a bisexual. (laughs) But I'm a star, and the audience loved me, and they love me for loving them. (laughs) And I love them for loving me. But I like the character of Roxy still. I mean, like, she... I thought she was hot. I thought she was Sharon Stone at first when I first watched this movie. When she was, was, walking like, when she was walking down the stairs. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until like the second close-up of her that I was like, that's not Sharon Stone. It is not. She's a, a totally separate character. But she's beautiful. She's I mean. so beautiful. And I, I feel like she convincingly plays like a jealous lover, right? Mm-hmm. Jealous enough to run someone over, right? Well, she's easily manipulated. Well, it's true. And she also had Allegedly. already killed people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if someone came up to me and I knew that my my pseudo partner was sleeping with this person and they were like, this is the fuck of the century, I would have been like, I'm going to run you over. You know, <laughs> like, honestly, yeah. I get where she's coming from. I mean, he was warned by every person that he was a threat. I was like, I'm going to have you in my book and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> if you don't leave her alone, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> this is a stupid fucking cop. <laughs> well, it's all the cocaine and tourist killing. Yeah. Really. But spare time. Yeah. I mean, like, how does he fit it in? I mean, there's there's not a, there's not a lot of talk of the lesbianism in this movie, at least not too much. It's, it, all of it depends on Roxy. Right. And how Roxy tries to change the situation or whatever i don't know i think Catherine's a uh, asexual narcissistic sociopath that uses sex to her advantage but you know i don't i don't think it's really i think it's incidentally using sex because she recognized herself as a sexual object and she uses that as a weapon against others i see a lot of Catherine in me okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> except well, for the asexual part well. <laughs> uh so en- enough about us let's talk about nick and beth Oh, God, do we have to? Yeah, I was like, mm, she said no, buddy. She really did. She said no, and she said no loudly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was like, okay, the, you know, just like there's degrees of murder. There's like degrees of, there should be degrees of like perjury, degrees of, I don't know, rape is rape, but like degrees of, you know, this person has a gun to your head and is like, you know, cutting you up and raping you versus you said no once and then started moaning. You know what I mean? Yeah. I might be unpopular for that. I don't know. Um, Maybe it's more complicated. The conversation continues. Let me know. But, you know, I feel like it's there's a little bit of ambiguity here, but I call it a rape in the synopsis. and I'm calling it a rape here. I feel like this is a rape. It's a rape. For sure. I mean, like no means no, period. And uh, once or ten times. Yeah. But if if it if it continues, you know, they they clearly have a relationship together. Like that's been established in the movie. Right. Uh, They talk about how they've been estranged sort of. Right. Mm -hmm. And he talks about like calluses and things like that. And. He is kind of like trying to get back with her at least or wanting to like continue their relationship. But at the same time, he's sort of like transfixed by Catherine and all of her sexual wiles and things. And he just he goes a little too far. There's a balancing act in this movie. Right. And I feel like the balancing act is how much we care about these characters at any given time. And right. If we cared way too much about Michael Douglas character, if he was a, a white knight in shining armor, 
how much would we be rooting really for Catherine? You know, how much fun would this movie be as like a full experience? So I feel, I feel like the, this, there's some alchemy happening in the writing here to make us feel a certain way at certain times to make other things more enjoyable as we go through as a construction of the story. I mean, I would agree with that completely. I will say that I don't really care for Michael Douglas's character in this movie. No, I think he's meant to be. Yeah. He is a classic archetype of film noir. Yeah. The alcoholic fucking detective with problems, you know? Terrible. And I just, I really, this scene makes me very, very uncomfortable. And I know that, I mean, in the version that we watched, it's a lot longer and a lot more uncomfortable than it was for normal theatrical audiences in 1992. We still don't know if I watched the unrated cut. Mine just said basic instinct, but it had the no, it had the uncomfortable fight. It had everything that you're describing. I don't know if there's any length differences or extended time. So there, there were like in the, in the theatrical cut, like they, maybe that's why I have a slightly softer stance on it than you, because maybe I didn't watch the longer version of it. I'm I'm thinking this is probably the case. I saw her push against the wall. I saw him push her against the table. She said no. And he forced his way into her. And so that's rape. You know, but it it after that it kind of calmed down a little bit. You know, but so in the theatrical version, like it, it it is uncomfortable and it is rough, and she does say no, and then it sort of like cuts to them like laying by the fire and some sort of like chef from South Park kind of thing, and then she gets mad and like kicks him out. In the unrated version, and this I'm gonna is gonna make love too. Oh <laughs> he was not doing that. No. In the in the unrated version, this is the first time that I saw that version, and my mouth was fucking agape. I was just like, I cannot believe that Verhoeven filmed this this long. So I do know some secrets about that. That's not in my show notes, uh, as far as my like, um, like fun facts, fun facts. But okay. I can tell you because I, uh, it was a rehearsal. He filmed the rehearsal without them knowing. Oh shit! Really? He told him to do it extra aggressive, and it was rehearsal to try it that way, a version of it, and they just kept it. I don't know how I feel about that, but I mean, it's, it's a tough fucking scene. If you've seen the unrated version, I mean, like, you know, like it goes on for, no, they choreographed it. So it wasn't like them just ad libbing. Oh, okay. Every sex scene is very choreographed. Trust me. Well, then I don't, they must've choreographed the fuck out of this. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like this scene is is bad. I, I know why it's, it's controversial and I feel like, like, even that should have been cut out of the unrated director's cut. <laughs> yeah. Well, the relationship ends up how it ends up. Right. And so it kind of, I don't know if it justifies its means or the means justify its end, you know, or whatever, but it is what it is. And everyone's fates are their fates. Um, you know, this is problematic at the very least rape at the most. And it's a depiction that tells us mostly about the character and what he's going through. Uh, and her reaction to it kind of tells a story about their relationship. And of course her as a psychologist, that's true i never thought about that aspect of it i mean she shouldn't be sleeping with her patient anyway but it's like that was different and he's like well and she's like why were you like that this time and he was like you tell me you're my psychologist you know yeah, yeah. maybe i do want to say and she said get out <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you in the office your, your time is up <laughs> <laughs> our 50 minute hour is over i turned off that red light <laughs> oh my god <laughs> roxy Heart, you don't have to turn off that. It wasn't even Roxy. (laughs) I know, but still, I just had to throw it in there. Yeah. And of course, every suspect of note is every single suspect in this film is a woman. All three. That's true. Well, I mean, that would have to be the case. Roxy, Catherine, and Beth. Because at the beginning of the movie, we see a woman killing a man. Yeah. So, I mean, like, 
I should hope. If they well, do I mean, they could have just been like, hey, he might have been having gay sex. He could have, but that looks suspiciously like a woman. Although, I guess men can look like women, too. Well, I guess they would have found traces of uh, poop on his dick instead of coke. That's <laughs> 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 well, not true. I don't know if they were raw dogging it. <laughs> oh, my God. You're going to fucking roll this episode, and I love it. <laughs> we just went from talking about rape to traces of fecal matter on penises. Well, from here on out, you will be the sole host because I will be canceled. <laughs> and this is why you love the film, Flamers. Uh, but we cannot talk about controversies and basic instinct and not talk about that scene of scenes, that vulvatastic scene. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's and there's also kind of a Me Too element to this as well. Right? Of course. Yeah. So there's this is a story history. Sharon Stone says she was asked to take off her white stockings and not underwear necessarily, but stockings, I think, um, because they were reflecting into the camera. If they were like true stockings, like going up all the way, you know, as part of the outfit, you know, then that would have changed the whole look of the, the costume. Yeah. I don't know, but he said they were reflecting. Anyway. Uh, she was told that nothing would be shown between her legs and that if anything, it would be covered in shadow. So when she finally saw the film with test audiences, she allegedly slapped Verhoeven and walked out of the theater. <laughs> I mean, I probably would too. She maintains her story to this day, adding an anecdote to the world's most paused moment in cinema history, saying, quote, I too have a pause button on my remote. And honestly, you don't see that much. End quote. Uh, okay. So maybe this is the difference again between the theatrical version and the unrated version. But in the version that I just watched, you can see a lot of it. The version I watched is different than some of the clips that I've seen uh, of the interrogation scene on YouTube. Okay. Um, and every time is a little different, you know, so it's, I don't know. I think people are doing their own thing with it. I think like, you know, not the version you saw, yeah. but I'm thinking there's some, you know, even I was trying to create an animated gif of the uncross <laughs> and in between her legs was going to be like new episode. <laughs> you know? oh my God. Yeah. We need that. <laughs> but, you know, but, and like I said, it had been a long time since I had this, seen this movie when I watched it for the podcast, you know, a couple of weeks ago and I was sitting there, it was a very pleasant Sunday afternoon. Someone had just been stabbed with an ice pick while having having sex and I was shocked by it. And then the scene came up and I was like, okay, you know, like how much do I remember? How graphic is it? Right. And I mean, that's not the right choice of word. Cause you know, the human body's beautiful, whatever. But I, she like crossed and uncrossed her legs and you can clearly see like all of her vulva, all of her lady parts are like out there. And I was just like, Oh my God, I do not remember it being that explicit. Mine wasn't. Okay. Mine was more like, the hint, I don't want to talk about this, like the hint of a crease in some hair, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that was it, you know, like, and then, uh, but uh, some of the other clips I've seen, there's more clearly, you know. Yeah, it was, it was pretty clear. So like, I don't really care. You know, the whole story is like, it's a storytelling that sh- that's this character is using her body, you know, to, to really kind of play this game, you know, and that's the point of the scene. Um, as far as Sharon Stone's story, uh, you know, Verhoeven disagrees and, my take is that we joke and and I think that's okay, but this is a woman or a female character who used her whole self, every inch of herself to exert power on others. And in this film, she used it for evil and nefarious purposes, but there's nothing wrong about the female body or women using their bodies exactly the way they want to. And, you know, this, the scene made Sharon Stone feel like a joke for years afterwards. But I, I don't think we can blame the scene 
for any issues in her career, given the, the latter half of the 90s. You know, non-diegetically, you know, that doesn't make it okay that Verhoeven did that. He denies it, saying that she completely understood what was happening, given the camera and the lighting placement, and that they had a dinner conversation about his story uh, from going to a college party where a female had done that to him from across the room. Hmm. And, he's, and he says that they agreed to do something like that for that scene. And, you know, you know, given the bullshit pre and even post hashtag me too, I, I tend to side with Sharon on this. Uh, I mean, if you look at the anecdotes from around that time and even before, I mean, hell, in the 70s, George Lucas told Carrie Fisher playing Leia that she couldn't wear a bra because there was no underwear in space. <laughs> These people got away with God. a lot back then, even if they weren't like touching you or exposing themselves or raping you or anything like that. They're exerting their power in different ways, you know, just to kind of satisfy the male gaze. You know, but, you know, oddly enough, Verhoeven and Sharon Stone are allegedly on friendly terms, simply agreeing to disagree, saying that they simply remember things differently. And that's probably where we should leave it if it's between them. You know, because I think I watch this film diegetically. I watch this film as something that that character is doing. You know, and Sharon Stone has said her piece and Verhoeven has said his piece. And if they're friendly about it, enough said. I feel like at the time... People talked about this. This was the most talked about part of this movie, obviously, right? And I feel like Sharon Stone, whether or not she intended to to show that much, like sort of reaped benefits from this, right? I think that she became a really buzzed, talked about actress, right? And yeah, it could have just been for her performance in this movie. I feel like she was good good enough in this movie to not have that be the main conversation of her part, right? Her portrayal. But- Clearly, she'll always be remembered for this, right? And I don't know if that's for good or for ill, but I I don't like the fact that someone says that they may have been taken advantage of or they, you know, didn't get, you know, to approve how they're shown on screen, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like she probably could have seen this movie before it went out to audiences, at least at some part. I mean, we just came from a film festival where the, the guy said, like, you're the first actual audience to watch this movie, but I've shown it to the cast, you know, and I don't know how often that happens, but I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of anecdotes surrounding this movie. Verhoeven shot almost every scene where there's any kind of nudity in many, many different angles, knowing that the studio and the MPAA would have something to say about it. I'm sure they did. And so it came back four times from the MPAA and he had to change things. And what happened was he had toned down like some of the rape stuff and he toned down some of the overt sexuality, the length of them, mm-hmm. you know, from the beginning or, and st- took out some, I mean, the original murder scene shows her stabbing his face and neck, you know, a bunch of times, you know, and that's not really in theatrical as much. Yeah. You see some stabs, but not as much. So he cuts minutes out of, of the violence and, and extra gratuitous sex, but leaves the, the, I was about to say the meat of it in. <laughs> You know, because uh, uh, consequently, this is also one of the only movies of erotic thrillers I've seen a dick in. And that's so, that first body. That's right. And uh, also, I'm I'm now confident in knowing that we did not watch the same cut. Because when I was watching this, I texted you like seconds into the movie. And I was just like, I am clutching my fucking pearls. Because that opening murder scene was fucking gnarly and amazing and that is some fucking excellent like botine work okay well when so, i rewatch it with matt i will make sure that it is the unrated version and i can report back yes please do because that opening murder scene even i as like a seasoned horror fan was like <laughs> the fuck no i was doing that too i was just like oh i did not expect it to be this hardcore for 1990 fucking two you yeah, know for sure 
So, you know, anyway, that kind of concludes the controversies section of this episode. But please let us know what you think about any of these issues. I think we'd really love to hear from anyone's outside perspectives. We would. And I mean, obviously, like some people will be on either side of it. You know what I mean? I I feel like having controversy like this in a movie as popular as Basic Instinct really helps open up a dialogue about things like these. Mm hmm. Uh, I do have some other notes, just casual notes that I made while watching the film that I just thought were funny um, or interesting. I'm sure you did the same. Uh, we we already talked about that opening. I was just like, this murder is basically porn. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, sure. not only is it just like the best shot cinematography porn you've ever seen, you know, but it's also like super visceral murder, you mm-hmm. know, stabbing with the ice pick and seeing it go into the neck and the torso and stomach and, you know, everything else. And like a fucking eyeball and shit. It's so Oh, cool. I did not see that. Oh my god, you're in you're in you're in for a treat, my friend. Yeah. Like it is gross. And I, I know it. that they described at the crime scene like it went up his nose and things like that, and I did not see that dirt happening, so maybe that's part of it, but Oh, it's so good. Yeah, gross. Anyway, yeah, we already mentioned the dick. Uh <laughs> I was just like stream of consciousness while watching this, and I was just like she introduced herself. Roxy had introduced herself as the friend. I'm her friend. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh I wanted to make a note about the the beach house. Oh my god. Fucking amazing it is and how much i want it i did so i have to go on our like horror real estate that's exactly what's on my notes because i was just like horror real estate top 10 yeah in two places like the mansion and the beach house and like several apartments in this i'm like my god i just gotta live in san francisco really that beach house though just knocks <sighs> everything else out of the so park good. oh my gosh i want that deck where they can just go down that and, like, fucking staircase yeah yes uh, anyway um you know and all throughout this movie i was thinking like sharon stone is so fucking sus and she'd be fucked with the dna evidence today yeah well there's a note about that later in the fun facts uh there's 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 just a lot of like quirky dialogue in this uh i think that one of the introductions to michael douglas's character uh he's he's talking to beth or whatever and he had broken up with her they they had been fucking and um uh she's like how are you doing he's like uh lessons have been with you my left hand is super calloused right now or something like that i was like jesus you <laughs> <Ew>, michael <laughs> calluses Ew. <laughs> oh, and then I was like, oh my God, maybe this is the originator or like an in-joke for showgirls when she says Versace. Because one of the fucking cops talking about that white silk sash mm-hmm. by Hermes. Hermes. And Hermes. I just wanted to vomit in my fucking mouth. <laughs> I know. Every gay man in the world who watches this movie is like, Hermes. <laughs> so, yeah. Some of you haven't pronounced it Hermes and it shows. <laughs> that can't be a coincidence. Hermes, you know, and, and Versace in the same like directed. Movie. Yeah, come on. Same writer. It's true. That's true. Yeah, it's got to be connected. So oh I think my we God, found, I love it. We, we found the missing link. <laughs> Hermes? Yeah, and and I, I also wanted to make a note about that car ride when they're first taking her for questioning. Mm-hmm. To me, that's almost a better scene than her being questioning with the whole crossed legs thing because she's really starting to play her hand at the psychological manipulation she so easily does against Michael Douglas's character. Yeah. She does. I mean, and that's part of the, this is the part of the movie where I really smoke. start to exactly when she's like can i smoke light a cigarette and right then it reminded me of seven with him in the back of the car and right then it reminds me of fucking hannibal lecter yeah. i feel like Catherine chamel is just equally as manipulative and smart and cunning and psychopathic as hannibal lecter i feel like these two characters are so close to each other like the yeah. whole time i was watching this movie i was like my god this character is fucking brilliant she's smart 
you know? She likes to kill, but she's just as easily capable of making other people kill for her. Exactly. And just you know? watching what happens or just like, she just wants to understand people in ways that Hannibal Lecter does, who mm-hmm. is also a psychologist, right? Yeah. I mean, and maybe, maybe it just goes along with the territory of that job. But I feel like as far as like characters and psychological thrillers go, like Hannibal Lecter and Catherine Chamel are tops. Like they're just so, so good. And so interesting. Right. And the fact that Hannibal Lecter got to have a whole series of movies. You love to hate them and hate to love them. After Silence of the Lambs and Catherine Chamel got shitty basic instinct too. I mean, I feel like, I feel like this character has a lot more to be explored than what we got in this particular movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I also wanted to note, um, how are all her friends not in jail? <laughs> We've got the mother who was an adult when she killed her kids and her husband. I'm assuming she spent some time in jail, but I mean, wouldn't that be life or like put to death? Unless she was found to be, of course this like, is liberal California. So I don't know if she was found to be criminally insane and she went to an asylum, you know, in that particular situation, then they will let you out when they feel you're not a dangerous society anymore. And mm-hmm. Roxy was a teen. So, I mean, she could easily be out. Yeah. Also, I also really like the little, like, um, some of the dialogue in this movie kind of reminded me of that um, movie I showed you not too long ago with Catherine Hepburn, uh, Lion, 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 Lion Winter. Winter, where this is a witty, witty dialogue. And I love that whole conversation about Coke versus Pepsi. It's like, you got any Coke? I really love it with my whiskey. And he's like, I've got Pepsi. (laughs) And I'm like, that's not what she's talking about. (laughs) When they're in the kitchen. Yeah. And then there's like, there's mirror dialogue going on with his, uh, with whenever they're uh, interviewing him and he says, what are you going to do? Like arrest me for smoking or whatever. It's, he's like mimicking her, you know? And it's just such an interesting kind of beat, almost like a comedy beat, but in the story reflecting, it is good. And I love the way that those two characters like play off of each other. Right. Yeah. I mean, cause you could see her like manipulating him from the, the minute they meet. And it's, it, it does get a little Muppety cause like, you know, when she's feeding him, she's doing everything she wants him to do. Mm-hmm. And every time like, this is such a fucking shitty cop. She's like her, all her threats are like not even veiled threats. They're like direct threats. Like I'm going to kill you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And he's like, Oh, that's sweet. You know? <laughs> and then she says the whole, like, Oh, like randomly that just have sex. She's like, let me tell you a random story about my college years, <laughs> you know? And it's just like, uh, and it's just says Oberman, right? Right, the last name of the girl is Oberman. You know, he goes and tracks down, and he, then he goes back. There was no Oberman. She's, I said, Oberman. <laughs> I'm like, this is so trashy. <laughs> but in the best way. I'm like, how do you not get it? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he's literally doing everything she wants, and then we have that ending, right? And so, um, like I said, it brought it down for a half star for me. And I wonder if, if not for that final scene, would this still be taken as ambiguous? And also kind of a third point, is it still ambiguous? Could she have had that ice pick below as a test to kind of like, hey, it's all happening. Might as well. We can't beat him. Might as well join him, you know, and test it out for herself. It's kind of interesting because she does seem like the kind of woman who doesn't like to get her hands dirty herself, you know. And so do we know for a fact that was her, you know, in the beginning of the film? Do we know these things? We could make an argument that it's not. But my belief is that, yes, of course it was. I mean, I also like to believe that it was as well, yeah. but I, I can see that point. You know, I feel like she, 
has committed murder many, many times and will continue to do so in the yeah. future. And uh, it's in the synopsis. She killed her fucking parents. Yeah, I mean, clearly. And I feel <laughs> she's like Debbie. she's the, she's, you said we don't get any, any more <laughs> of her, but that's the, she's the archetype for Debbie from oh, fucking Adam's Family Values. I mean, come on. <laughs> Pastels. Catherine. Pastels. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I do need to see Basic Instinct 2. I have no idea what it's even about. I have no, no clue. But I mean, I am kind of intrigued by this character and I'd kind of like to see another story with her in it. I just don't want it to be bad. You know what I mean? So well, I know it takes place in London. I know that she is suspected or convicted of something. And the judge that lets her go, but she's kind of pitted against another psychologist that they've brought in specifically to deal with her. Oh. And so she is going back and forth with the psychologist and they're kind of having a budding of a tete-a-tete. Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Maybe I'll watch it sometime. But it has really low ratings and I the trailer was just super nineties crap. I mean, I think fifty six percent on Rotten Tomatoes for this movie is ridiculous. Oh no, it should be. I mean, that that was pure to me. I'd like to see like how much percentage of these reviews are from the eighties or sorry, from the nineties. Uh-huh. You know, around that reaction time versus from today. You know, so there's that visceral reaction from the you know more conservative crowd. I, I feel like today it's widely seen as the de facto reigning champion of all erotic thrillers i would have to agree with you i feel like if it didn't i don't even think that like some of the controversies that we've talked about are controversial today really except for maybe that rape scene you know what i mean i think otherwise this movie is very sex positive i think it's gender positive a little bit i feel like there's a woman in control of everything in this movie and i really really like that about it yeah you know i feel like today it's way more accepted than it would have been back then. Right. You know, before watching this, I would have said this can't be as good as fatal attraction. But if, if I'm looking at these movies, I feel like this is like de facto erotic thriller mm-hmm. versus fatal attraction. It's kind of intrinsic, you know, and you know, to its story, but it's not meant to be an erotic thriller. It's about obsession. Right. It's not titillating. Right. And <laughs> great. It's not as meaty. <laughs> There's not as much of a ham wallet. I don't know. <laughs> Do you have any fun facts for me? Oh, I feel like there's been fun facts all through this episode. There already. has, but I'm going to give you the cream of the crop. Okay. And I don't know. Some of them might not be. My first one's kind of long. Uh, Paul Verhoeven has some disagreements with Michael Douglas over his direction of Sharon Stone. Stone was reportedly very nervous and insecure. And in her first scene, she was unable to replicate the performance that she had given during her audition. So according to Verhoeven, she came very close to being replaced. But since he knew she had what the role required, he coached her intensively to get the required performance out of her. However, this caused Douglas to feel left out as Verhoeven thought that Douglas, as an established actor and you know producer, no longer needed such close attention. It eventually led to a very heated argument in a trailer, the stress of which caused Verhoeven to burst a vein in his nose that caused profuse bleeding. And when he went outside with blood-stained clothes, crew members believed that Douglas had physically beat the shit out of him <laughs> in the face. <laughs> Because he wanted more attention from his director, I guess. Grow up, Michael Douglas. Anyway, next up. No body doubles were used in any of the sex scenes. So was that Sharon Stone in the beginning? Yep. Wow, good for her. Totally her. Uh, Next up, uh, Paul Verhoeven was on record when he first signed to do the film as saying that he wanted to make it the first Hollywood mainstream film with an erect penis in it. (gasps) 
he didn't get his wish, but he did get a limp penis on screen on Boz, uh, on Boz's cadaver when the police examined his body. That's right. Although Verhoeven yeah, doing tr- the Lord's work. You trying to. <laughs> uh, okay. Upon seeing the film, Steven Spielberg noticed Wayne Knight and immediately wanted him to play Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park. He stayed through the end credits just to find his name and Knight ended up being the first actor cast in that movie. Really? Like out of everybody in this movie, it was Wayne Knight. He was just like, that's the one. Although he's yeah. perfect in Jurassic Park. He is. So, I mean, he's so he is the catalyst for everything. Uh-huh. He's the lynchman. <laughs> that would be Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. Hold on to your hand pocket. <laughs> Ew. Next up, the movie completely ignored DNA, which had actually been used in criminal investigations since the mid-1980s. The film was set in the year of its release, 1992, by which time DNA was constantly being used for crime investigations. Almost every fucking murder case, because now... I know, because I love fucking true crime. And even more than like true crime, I love forensics TV shows. And I mean... Anytime there was a crime, someone could have stole a bike and they were like, swap it for DNA. (laughs) Clearly. Get the rape cap. (laughs) Yes. Like this movie would have been like five seconds long. They were like solved. Yep. (laughs) I mean, there had to be some sort of slime trail on his (laughs) butt. You saw the flashlight. There was all that cum all over. I know. There was cum everywhere. I mean, all they had to do was swap her stinky pinky and they would have been (laughs) They're like, done. This film's actually a short. Oh, God. Yeah. So, I mean, he wrote this in like, I don't know, 82 or something. So, and then it, he didn't change it. He didn't update the, you know, stuff and why. That's you know? true. So, I mean, it makes sense as a movie, you know, diagetically. It's and just, it's fine. I mean, like, yeah. that, that doesn't make for a good crime thriller. If you're going to make those, even today we make crime thrillers and they're like, well, the DNA evidence says otherwise. I mean, like, that's I, not fun. Yeah. People look at this movie and they think, oh, it's an old movie. And, you know, millennials look at this or, you know, the zennials and they're like, people weren't alive back then. And exactly. They'll just take anything. So, they're like, they weren't even made of DNA. <laughs> Back then, they were made of paper mache. <laughs> That's right. They were formed. And so <laughs> it was like a potter's wheel and ghost. That's how people were it's made. Right after they invented color. <laughs> Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore made every person until we created DNA. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lastly. So, uh, so choreographed were the sex scenes that Sharon Stone referred to herself and Michael Douglas as the horizontal Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers of the 90s. <laughs> sexy (laughs) that's fun those were fun facts good and fun movie so i'm glad they all matched up but we have some questions to ask about basic instinct like we do about every movie that we deep dive into here on the film flamers and we're going to start with is basic instinct a horror movie yeah sure yeah, I completely. I mean, it was nominated for the Saturn Horror Award, so. I mean, but they just throw that out like fucking water. I mean, like, come on. No, no, no. <coughs> Respect the Saturn Awards. I mean, always. I mean, now that I know that, I can they're always the ones that them. we make fun of the least. That's true, <laughs> and we can be a part of it for a mere couple thousand. Oh my god! So. Uh, but yeah, no, I feel like this is a horror movie for sure. I mean, like, there's some grisly fucking crime and death in this, right? It's and multiple genres of horror mashed up together. For, for real. Right? In like a, a film noir, you know, frame. You know, that's it. I fucking love it. So, yes, horror movie for sure. Were you scared while watching Basic Instinct? Uh, no, I can't describe it as scared. Uh, tense. Surely. I mean, 
There's no I'm, Dolby shocks per se. No, you know? I mean, I'm not sure I was scared. I'm not even sure I was really tense, really. I just, I mean, you know, sort of like let it wash over you and, you know, you're just along for the ride, right? I don't even think it's that mysterious, really, because, I mean, I think it's kind of easy to to call the end of this movie. I think it's easy to figure out, like, who the fucking killer is, at least for the intents and purposes of the end of this movie, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, not really scared, but still a horror movie. Uh, out of five stars, what would you rate Basic Instinct? You know, I was ready to, I was like, oh my God, this is really good. Oh my God, this continues to be really good. And it was just so consistent, so consistent for me. Uh, and consistently fun. It almost borders on guilty pleasure, but it's not. It hovers above that. It's mm-hmm. such a, a razor's edge of a line of just tone throughout the whole movie. And it's fun for me. Uh, certainly on a first watch now, and it, and it exceeded my expectations. That could be a part of it. I was going to rate it five stars, but that ending kind of really kind of was like, trust your fucking audience. I don't need to be spoon fed, especially after this whole movie where you're expecting people to follow a lot of this dialogue, you know, and, and be smart. We're smarter than this. Don't, don't do that. And so I had to, to lower it. So I, I ultimately gave this a 4.5, which is extremely high for me. This is, you know, on the verge of being a near perfect movie. I agree with you. I gave this movie four stars and I feel like it needs to be higher than that because for the same reasons, I mean, like when I was watching this and it had been several years since I had seen it, maybe like 15, almost 20 years. And I had forgotten like how good it was and how fun it was. Right. This is an excellent movie, an excellent ride with an excellent performance by Sharon Stone. Like, yeah, it's just a really, really good movie. And I feel like four stars doesn't really do it justice. You know? Yeah. I expected you're ready to be just as higher, higher than mine as usual. You know what? But, and I know I talked about this being the more than the sum of its parts, but everything about this movie was super intentionally made. Mm-hmm. Like I said, multiple, multiple angles of every shot was done so that they could really craft this thing and put it together. The rhythm of the story was constructed in such a way to make you feel in such a way. The tone is consistent. The shots are very, very in- intentionally done. I love the way he moves the camera towards his characters to emphasize as if it's an exclamation point on the dialogue or the scene and not a cartoonish or Muppety way. Everything about this movie is super comp- competent and matches what's going on diegetically and non-diegetically. And, uh, you know, I love it and, and multiple layers and, and, you know, contexts. And so, um, it's only that, that misstep at the very end for me. And for me, it's the rape scene. Like, it just really, really didn't sit well with me. I was actively uncomfortable. I had to pause the movie and go smoke a cigarette. You know what I mean? I was just like, I need to step away from this. Because it was viscerally bad. Mayhaps watch the theatrical version. Yeah, and I think that's the case. I mean, like, if you could take in the, the grislier parts of the murder at the beginning and get rid of the rape part, right? Like, I think that would be a much better unrated movie, you yeah. know? But I, I really didn't like it. In fact, like, after the movie was over, I kept thinking about that one particular moment and I was like, this isn't good. It's unfair for a couple of the characters and it just made me feel bad and uncomfortable. Yeah, And so I feel like that's that's what lowered it a little bit for me. I probably would have been a 4.5 when I went down to four. So, so finally, and some would say most important, who's the hottest guy in basic instinct. I guess it kind of has to be Michael Douglas. Yeah. Except for the corpse. (laughs) 
<laughs> the corpse is pretty hot. That rock star? Yeah. We only never really saw, I never saw him really close up. Uh, because when he is closer up, it's his, you know, smashed pumpkin face. <laughs> right, it's a fucking ice pick to the eye and shit. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, Michael Douglas, I guess, is the only real option. I think they kind of go out of their way to make other guys look a little less attractive. Yeah, and he was in really good shape for this movie. And he had just done a full, uh, allegedly, he had just done a full uh, facelift. Which is why he kind of looks the same age or younger in this one than he did in Fatal Attraction. Fatal Attraction, in I know. <laughs> so, okay, so who's the hottest woman in this movie? Sharon fucking Stone. Sharon Stone, yes, my God, she is gorgeous and continues to be gorgeous. I got a, a little tickles throughout this movie. Just, oh my, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm like, my God, is she so hot that she's, you know tickling my fancy a little bit i mean even when she's like supposed to be vulnerable or like a little tender like when she's sitting at that at the beach house and they walk down the stairs and she's in that like that chunky knit and turns around you know what i mean like the look on her face i was just like she's gorgeous and then i reminded how gay i am and i'm like oh there's an executive look there's a chunky knit <laughs> this is her sleepover outfit <laughs> how many outfits does barbie come with you know oh my god <laughs> so, only chunky nets yeah lord I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Basic Instinct. And as always, we want to know what you think about this movie. You can find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. I'm not wearing any underwear. I'm the fuck of the century. The fuck of the century. <laughs> Is that a nice pick in your pocket? Or are you just happy, you're just to, happy see to see me? Jesus. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Stay tuned for next week when we discuss Showgirls. And boy, howdy, are we going to continue the conversations about those ham pockets or whatever you were calling them? <laughs> no. It's going to be conversations about ham pockets and jazz hands in front of the face that we would call dance moves. Saved by the bell. <laughs> if you need more Film Flamers content, head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers to find all of our bonus stuff, especially this month, because we're talking about Sharon Stone some more and the movie Sliver. I haven't seen it. I can't wait. Oh, I feel kind of bad already for showing it to you, but let's do it. <laughs> all right, Chris. Well, it's hot. It's summertime. We need to go watch Showgirls and get even hotter and have some... Sweet dreams. It's for Sace. Oh, I need to get more calluses on my left hand. <laughs> I, can't I actually it. use my left Did hand. Did we so. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I'm out of Pepsi. I don't know. No, I just have Coke. <laughs>